right, some of you know that I like to give you something to chew on to grow deeper. Let's see, the last time was read through the word. And I hope you took that. I know some have been posting and letting me know how they're going and what's our even deeper questions. But I'm going to start with something and then kind of give you more and more of it a little bit each week, not that I've got a ton of time for it. But let me see if you can answer this question. What is the chief end of man? I think I heard it. Thank you. That's the complete part. A lot of times you've heard people say, enjoy God, and they cut it off. But glorify God and enjoy him forever. The whole piece. Now, that's what? Where does that come from? What? Westminster Catechism, shorter or longer, either one. But that's the first one that you hit. And the catechisms, I know some of us Protestants, (laughs) we kind of react on those and go, that's Catholic. No, it's not. It's actually to catechize means to teach by question. That's how Paul was taught by Gamaliel. That was the traditional teaching in, in rabbinic work is to go through, you ask a question, you have an answer for that specific question. So there's a lot of different catechisms. In the next few weeks, I'll give you some that are out there that you can actually work through. Some are very simple. Some are a little bit more Classical, like the Westminster Catechism. There's the long and the short. Either one. But the fun thing is to be able to do it. Now, Christian and I, we both said we want to do it. We haven't done it yet. We wanted to kind of start working each other on ask the question, give the answer. And a lot of the catechisms we we found, and one that we really enjoy, gives you all the text of Scripture that supports that. And it's a great way to deepen your biblical understanding, the specific answers back. I mean, one time, too, to even understand why we glorify God and we will enjoy him forever, where does that come from in Scripture? And you'll be able to see that and answer it and know it and go deeper in your walk. I mean, the catechisms are great to help us to stay on a course. I mean, there's a lot of times, too, we just kind of ran them all over the place. I mean, I hope you don't read the Bible like that, but that's always the fun one where you just thumb through and all of a sudden you go finger in the Bible and you stop and you read it and you go, that's it. And it's so out of context, right? You're going, you know, Jesus wept, so what's that mean for you today? You're going to be crying through the whole day, poor thing. I hope not. But you see, those are, we want to go deep and we want to expand and probably even asking each other the catechismic questions to kind of challenge each other to go deeper in what we really know. What do you really understand and know about God? I always love that question where Paul says, if you boast about anything, boast about this, your knowledge of God, how far are you going to boast? Yeah, I always stop. You know, you oh, yeah, I'm going to tell you everything I know about. Never mind. Skip. Forget it. Because you can't do that. So anyway, let's get started this morning. Let me open it with prayer so my nerves will settle a little bit. Father, this morning we embark on a series that's actually 
almost impossible to, to cover quickly. But give us insight, give us understanding, deepen our thoughts, and help us to see who Christ truly is today and back then. God, we just seek you for your wisdom and counsel and for that that our hearts and our minds will be completely open and receptive to the truth of Scripture. We love you and look forward to all that you teach us. In Jesus, amen. Well, my hope is that in the next four weeks, believe it or not, we will travel with Jesus through the last hours of his earthly life. Normally, this is a 12-week series study, something that was originally developed by Dawson McAllister. Dawson, many years ago, I won't tell you how many. Dawson was my mentor in student ministries. He taught me how to do student ministries. He was a great teacher and a hard teacher, held me to the fire. But it was a great lesson, and he, he's continued on. He's done a lot of work and a lot of studies. I think he's still on the radio. I haven't checked lately. And he does everything with students, answering students' questions. So, But I'll be using his series that I've got at home. I'll be using that as kind of a driver. Some think that when we talk about Christ, some people out there today think that he was prideful, just wanted everything to point to himself. Some say that he just downright was a madman or he was definitely delusional. So before we can truly walk with Jesus to the cross, it's necessary to know him deeper and accurately. So the best place to start to know him is Philippians 2, verses 5 through 7 this morning. Turn with me. I will be reading out of the NIV just to kind of help us. I know it's kind of struggle. You're probably NASB or ESV or something else. It's kind of fun to sit and try to follow along when there's a little bit different translation, but it's easy to follow. Verse 5 starts out and says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of form of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, death on the cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The hard part is going straight to this text, and you're kind of missing the whole. I always hate doing that because you can always preach any kind of sermon you want out of a piece of text and go anywhere you want to go. But for us to hold this in the context that it really sits, let's go back to verse 1 and see how we flow into verse 5. Verse 1 says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, and if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one mind. 
Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. So the key to the section that we, we look at today is really about how we deal with relationships. And the key point we look to Jesus and see what to do and how it is done when we're under the control of the Holy Spirit. Paul is clear that we need to look to Christ and see his example and live lives equal to his. But let me back up a bit. I'm not saying that all you have to do is just study all that Jesus did and just do the same thing. And then you'll be perfect and everything will be just fine. No. You can try, but you'll never live out your life the way Christ did. Why? Because it is done not by us practicing and participating in things, but it's by the Spirit of Christ in us changing us from the inside out. You can try in your own power, but you'll be striving in the flesh. I know it's the same with the gifts of the Spirit, right? You look at the list, and what you see are the results of a Spirit-controlled life. That's the evidence of a changed life and controlled life by the Spirit. You and I might think it correct to say, go out and try to be kind, and that will work. Maybe for a week. I'll be good for a day, maybe. The list Paul gave us are evidences of a life under the control of God. So we will see clearly that the life Jesus lived before us here on earth was a life of obedience to the Father. You got that out of Bruce's message this morning, right? Obedience kept coming up. What we hear and read in the Bible doesn't just stay there or in our head. It has to move to obedience. It's very easy to sit and hear the word, but what's always the scriptures say, where you always see it coupled. You see where you hear the word, you then what? Do it. it. So it goes from understanding to action. All right, so let's go back to the text. So we want to have, what's the correct attitude? So starting again in verse 5, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset, or you should think this way, as Christ Jesus. One writer put it this way, how Jesus Christ thought about things in the way you should think about them. Does that make sense? How Jesus thought is the way you need to think. But again, how are you going to do that? You need the Spirit of God to sit and drive your thinking. Because if not, our thinking is going to be what? Worldly, fleshly. So the text pushes us to look at Christ and learn about him in a most deep way. Now these verses 6 or 11 actually will cap off a little bit of the end, but... We're looking at this whole section as literally, we're thinking historically, we're thinking that this is possibly a hymn, an early hymn of the church, or possibly a poem of the time of the church. But the interesting thing enough, Paul is using it here to help us to truly understand and see Christ. 
They're broken up in stanzas is what you would normally have in this type of writing. And the fun part is stanza one, each verse is a stanza. So we'll start with stanza one. We begin in verse six with who. Okay, the who here is Jesus. And then quickly you see right after it, being is added pointing to his preexistence, God. He is God by right. And this is Jesus before the incarnation or another way to understand the enfleshment of God. And I don't know if you've heard that used before. He is very nature in the form of God. It's a term that the Greek underneath it is theu. It's the form of God. He's the true essence. It's truly who God is. So again, you don't, you don't see Jesus as how it's just Jesus. It's God is Jesus. Dawson shared some good examples in, in the study to bring it a little bit more clear, he asked the question is, if you have always been an American, do you have to grasp at being an American? Redundant question would be? Is that in today's black? Yeah, 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 I know. <laughs> you wouldn't have to work to be an American if you're American. It's not something you strive after. It's not something you have to do. Here's another question. If you stand six foot tall... Do you have to stretch and struggle to be six foot tall? No, because you are six foot tall. So Jesus doesn't have to work to be God. He is God. So again, it helps us to understand who being is a strong statement to say who, Jesus being God, and then we move on. Verse 6b, we continue. Did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. It's a very strange statement sometimes to look at, but F.F. Bruce helps us to grasp this a little bit better. He says, the point is, rather that he did not treat his equality with God as an excuse for self-assertion or self-aggrandizement. On the contrary, he treated it as an occasion for renouncing every advantage or privilege that might have occurred to him thereby as an opportunity for self-impoverishment and unreserved self-sacrifice. So here we have the word that comes up in the text again in the Greek. It's harpagmon. It's a different word, nothing you and I have probably ever used. It can also mean to grasp or to retain or to force what one possesses. So when the fact that Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, some translations have come up with, the NIV translates in their the translation notes, say the word refers to something that a person has in their possession but chooses not to use to their own advantage. Do you see how that works? He is God. He's fully God. But he chooses by his own elective choice to not utilize the power. Now let's go a little further. Clearly meaning that after the incarnation, Jesus had no thought of trying to become equal with God because he already possessed all the qualities of deity. He is fully God. One more way to understand this is that Jesus did not exploit it for his own selfish agenda. He came to be obedient to the Father. Again, do you understand the real concept of what has to happen here? 
You and I cannot die for our own sins or anybody else's sin, right? Why? Because we're sinners. So who can be the substitution to pay for my sin? Well, the only thing you have is it has to be a sinless individual. Well, as hard as you might search, you will not find any anywhere in time and history here on earth except Jesus. Stanza 2, verse 7, moving deeper. We see now what this verse is known as, and this is in the realm of theology sometimes, called the kenosis of Christ. Rather, he made himself nothing, that's the kenosis, by taking the very nature or form of a servant being made in human likeness. Now notice, we started out with morphe theo, right? Form of God. Now he is taking also on what's still the form of God. He's now taking on the form of morphe dulu, servant. Better translation, we struggle, slave. Okay? He emptied himself, not of his divine nature, but his heavenly glory. For God to become Jesus, he had to empty himself. The man Jesus was limited. For God is omnipresent, but Jesus was omnipresent or limited? He was limited. Where Jesus was is where Jesus was. God is omnipotent. So was Jesus omnipotent, all-powerful? No. No. Did he get tired? Was he weary? Was he thirsty? Was he hungry? See, all the aspects we kind of struggled to understand how this fits together, we hit these walls, right? It's like, but, but he's God, yes. But he's man, dulu, slave. I mean, don't worry. If you're struggling with it, I will forever struggle with it because it's still that complex piece to sit and understand that he laid down or set aside all the glories. Now, could he take it back up? Yes, but what would then be the problem? He would not be disobedient to the Father and trying to be what? In the position as a man to be God. Who else tried to do that in history? Satan did. Now, he wasn't man, but he tried to be like God. See, Jesus is reversing every single thing that's gone on in time and history with sin. He's reversing every bit of that with his life. He's not trying to be God. He's divested himself. He's emptied himself. Satan wanted to be God. He is opposite of where Satan is. So you can see the contrast are going that has to happen in Christ to see and see the work. N.T. Wright helps us to understand this a little bit further. He says, the decision to become human and to go all the way along the road of obedience, obedience to the divine plan of salvation, yes, all the way to the cross, this decision was not a decision to stop being divine. It was a decision about what it really meant to be divine. That trigger somewhere? His progression through incarnation to death must be seen not as something which required him, as it were, to stop being God for a while, 
but as a perfect self-expression of the true God. Only God could do this. There's no other being that could ever do this. Again, F.F. Bruce brings even more light to this point. And I, this is, I, I do a lot of examples here because this is probably one of the more difficult texts of Scripture to go through. Just about every commentary I've read, they always say, this one's the most complex and deep. Because it's dealing with stuff that we just don't trigger well with. I mean, again, think about what had to happen in the early church in one of the synods to deal with heresy. And it was the Council of Nicaea. What did they come out with? Is Jesus God or is Jesus human? Well, the argument was, oh, he's human. Got a little pinch of God inside of him. And the Council of Nicaea sat down and went through this in detail in the scriptures and came out with what? He is both God and both man. That's where we understand today he's 100% God, 100% man. Now, the problem you and I have is there's nothing that's 200% of anybody. If I was 200% of me, I'd be excited because 100% of me would be going over here doing this work and 100% be doing this work, right? It's called cloning, that happening. So F.F. Bruce brings to the light this point about Christ emptied himself as well-known theology is the kenosis of Jesus. He says, this does not mean that he exchanged the nature or form of God for the form of a servant. There was not the exchange, okay? It means that he displayed the form of God in the form of a slave. So when you see the slave operating Jesus, you're seeing God. That was one of the points that kind of triggered in my head with Bruce was talking this morning and talking about how abundantly God gives. And Jesus multiplied and fed the multitude. Isn't that just the nature of God? I mean, think about it. Back up. Creation. Created everything and put man in the creation and said, it's yours. Take care of it. All of it. Abundant. It's a giving God. It's consistent. You see this in Jesus and his ministry. So again, you're not seeing like a cut up. You're seeing God in the flesh when you see Jesus. Jesus said himself why he came and how he came in Mark 10.45 he says, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Stanza 3, verse 8. In being found in appearance as man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. In the end of verse 8, we read, being made in human likeness is clearly stating he was born like other men. And you do see that in the text, right? You, you, you kind of get big gaps. I mean, you get his birth. We get a lot of stuff on this birth and history and the details and everything. And then it kind of like goes dark, I guess, quiet, silent. And then he like starts showing up in temples and the family takes off from the Passover feast, and they're hidden and think he's with his family, and all of a sudden, yeah, whoa, wait a minute, hold it, where? Where's Jesus? Anybody know? What's mom and dad do? Back to Jerusalem. 
Where is Jesus? It's in the temple teaching. I mean, you get these big chunks, but right, what did he? And then the scripture is very clear. He grew up in stature, his height, his size, and in wisdom. He grew up. Okay. Again, that's that absolute perfect substitution that has to occur on the cross. So when we looked at him, he was human. In about the first century A.D., the arid thought bubbled up in the say that Christ's humanity was only a semblance of humanity and not real humanity. This is a weird doctrine that came out. It's called docetism. And it denied that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. John and Paul dealt with this error constantly in their writings because it was starting to flow. I mean, some people really think, well, it was like 90% God and maybe 10% man. No. Maybe 99% man and just kind of a small little vestige of God, kind of a sprinkling of God. I mean, there's some strange stuff out there. Because he's 100% God and 100% man. That's where man struggles to understand. Remember, Jesus humbled himself as a deliberate act of self-humiliation. From birth to death, his life is marked through that humility. And in that humility, he was obedient to death. And the sacrifice of Jesus was completely voluntary. Jesus said in John 10, 17 through 18, the Father loves me because I sacrificed my life so I may take it back again. No one can take my life from me and I sacrifice it voluntarily. For I have the authority to lay it down when I want to and also to take it up again. For this is what my Father has commanded. Voluntary coming as a man and obedience to the Father in absolute, all the way to the point of death. Now notice the way Paul ends this. He goes in and says, he came in the form of human likeness, right? What's the next statement after that at the end of the verse? Even, read your Bible. That is not a normal piece of the stanza. That kind of throws the uh, poetic meter off. And if you look at it, all of a sudden you're realizing Paul is amplifying that humiliation, amplifying that work, but that full ultimate level of humiliation is the cross. It's the lowest level that you could go. Now let's back up a little bit. This, this is kind of a little different for us, but this is called an honor-shame culture that we're really looking at. So before we continue, we need to stop and take a look at what is occurring. God is going in the direction of a descent downward. That's not normal for us to see. From glory all the way to the cross, as we will see in a moment, at that time, as it is in many cultures today, there exists an honor-shame society. One comment to understand this a little bit better, honor was universally regarded as the ultimate asset for human beings and shame the ultimate deficit. 
so much so that academics frequently refer to the Egyptian, Greek, and Roman societies simply as honor-shame cultures. Much of life revolved around ensuring you and your family received public honor and avoided public shame at all costs. In the most crafty way, Paul to the prideful Corinthians hit them with a reverse boasting, a reverse issue where they would say, oh, boast. And there was there were some rules, believe it or not. There were rules on it. Now, boasting in those days had rules limiting its use in society by Plutarch. Paul, with those rules, set marks that boasting in 2 Corinthians chapters 10 through 13 and then we just look deep and see it's a reverse position of shame. I mean, you're reading and think, wow, Paul's really kind of an arrogant guy here. I mean, it's like, what? It's a, this is not normal. I mean, he's supposed to be a humble apostle. And, now, let's play with this. Here's a good quote. Paul does follow these rules in a self-deprecating sort of way. <clears throat> sort of way. And he also subverts the whole way that ancients would normally boast about themselves by boasting of things they would never brag about. Now, consider this fun list. No one would brag about how many times they had been stoned, how many times they had been run out of town, or how many times they had been shipwrecked, and how many times they had been pursued and betrayed by their co-religionists, and especially no one would have bragged about how they escaped danger by being lowered over a city wall in a basket under the cover of darkness. See what Paul did? Reversed it. So the incarnation of God is a downward trek in shame. Not what you and I think about or even aim for. But this is what God did in Christ. Ultimately, ending at the cross, Paul adds this to the stanza by pulling it out in a metered way by forcing us to see the level of shame. Remember Deuteronomy 21:22 says curses is a man hanged on a tree. Well, let's see if it's a cultural thing too. So the form of a servant being made in human likeness he started as an infant and grew up human, yet without sin, but still think deeply. God, the creator God, became man. That has always been my greatest comfort and strength to know that God is the only true God. And what God, have you ever heard or studied that came to live as a man by any other religion? that lived a perfect life and then died for those who hated him and sinned against him. Yes, he became flesh and dwelt among us. So the descent continues to the end of verse, verse 8. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. The cross was the lowest form of execution. I think you all understand the physiology that goes on in the death of, uh, on the cross takes about three days to slowly suffocate to death. It's excruciating. It's horrific. There's only so much energy your body can expend after being beat and after being skewered and bleeding and pain and the suffering and the elements and everything else going on. Cicero wrote, and this is amazing, this is from 
the culture, this is your Roman culture. Cicero wrote, he says, to bind a Roman human citizen is an outrage. To scourge him is a crime. It almost amounts to parricide. That's the killing of a family member. To put him to death. How shall I describe crucifixion? No adequate word can be found to represent so exorbitant an enormity. I mean, those, those words just amplified multiple. If, if Bruce helps us to go deeper and, and even understand what the, the word meant, in polite Roman society, the word cross was an obscenity. It was the four-letter word of the day. Not to be uttered in conversation, even when a man was being sentenced to death by crucifixion, an archaic formula was used to, that avoided the pronouncing of this four-letter word as it was in Latin, crux. The utterly vile form of punishment was that which Jesus endured, and by enduring it, he turned that shameful instrument of torture into the object his followers Proudest boast, may I never boast, says Paul, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus. Galatians 6.14. So from humiliation and shame, the turn occurs in verse 9. You see what had to happen. We move from Jesus' humiliation to his exaltation, and I don't want to leave you hanging to find out the rest of the story, even though this is not where I want to go and study, but just to focus on Jesus, even though this is not our push at this point to know and know that Jesus came to die to be the perfect example before us on how to live as we follow our rabbi Jesus, he moved from the extreme humbled state of being to exalted to the highest position. Let's read on. Verse 9 says, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, and gave him the name that is above every name. This is the point that Matthew records in Matthew 23, 11. The greatest among you will be our servant. If the name given is Lord, in the Old Testament, Kyrios is used in place for Yahweh, which was too sacred to be normally pronounced. And you heard that this morning. So when he says, Lord, this is tying back to the Old Testament. This is God. So again, you're getting that strong understanding, that name above every name, that he is Lord. He is Yahweh. He is God. So you're not missing one single piece in this whole text. He's <coughs> sustained and maintained and continues to be God. There's not a time where he wasn't God. And this text brings it up even higher, and that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So as you look back, we see clearly that Jesus is God. But my, I put it another way, and I think this is how, if I had someone trying to explain, and you and I probably are in the same boat sometimes, try to explain the Trinity. Right? You're going, hada, hada, hada. three and one. What is that, an oil? No? Okay. It's like a clover leaf. No. Why? 
Because there are three leaves. They're distinct. That's not God. All right, nice, nice try. And I, the other one I heard, I thought, oh, this is going to go weird. It's like a slice of pie. I'm like, this ought to be fun. And you've got the, the cherries inside in the mixture and the crust. What's that? Three distinct items. That's not God. You're struggling, aren't you? You're joint. Well, I've got the better answer. It's the egg, shell yolk and white. What do you just? What'd you just do? Three separate items. That's not God. And you're going. Are you going to give us the answer or what? No. But I'm going to help you to think better. So you and I walk day in, day out and say, Jesus is God, right? That's pretty much the natural point. Have you ever considered taking your mind and your thoughts to go more in the accurate direction and say, God is Jesus. God is the Father. God is the Spirit. When you come from that angle, you're coming straight from one and you're seeing then the three. You're not separating, you're not cutting them into pieces. You're keeping your mind straight to understand that Jesus is God. No, no. God is Jesus and you keep that tight. So when you see him go through these last few hours that we're going to cover in the next few weeks, you're going to be understanding and seeing God doing things in front of us. I think one of the most weird things is, you know, we'll continue to walk with Jesus all the way to the cursed cross and we'll see him live out the life that we're also to live by the Spirit. Sorry, I have to always put that in because you can't live it on your own. I, I had someone say, well, what you want to do this week is work on your kindness. The minute I walk in the door at work, my kindness probably goes right out the door. Someone goes, what's your problem? And all of a sudden, well, what's your problem? You know what that means? Your kindness is, you know, I'm going to work on it tomorrow. How about your love? Oh, you know what you can do. You can put a lot of veneer on the front, right? You can be kind to somebody on the inside ripping the living life right off of them, right? Or you can be conscientious and, and caring and on the inside, why don't they grow up and deal with their own messes? You know, you and I know exactly what we're talking about. We can put a lot of veneer up and look pretty good. We can look good Christian. But Jesus is not looking on our veneer. He's looking what? Inside. He knows the intent. That scares me to death, folks. Intent of the heart? That's before you do it. <laughs> All right, remember back in those days, WWJD? I always thought this was dumb. Saw non-Christians wearing the wristbands, you know, kind of like, it's kind of cute, whatever. Okay, what would, what would Jesus do? If you guys don't remember, what would Jesus do as the kick flow? <laughs> well, let me ask you this. How would you know what Jesus would do if you don't know Jesus? If you don't know him as God, what would God do? I don't know. But the only way that you do what Jesus did is to know him and see what he did, then do what Jesus did. What do you think it meant to be a rabbi? We've talked about this before, right? 
And the disciples followed their rabbi. What did that mean? Well, not only did they follow him everywhere he went, they also saw everything he did, heard everything he said, and wanted their life to be an absolute carbon copy of everything their rabbi did. So when they followed their rabbi, they wanted to be like their rabbi, they wanted to do what their rabbi did, and they wanted to continue to replicate everything that their rabbi did. That's who we're following. That's who we're going to watch these next few hours of life and see God go through the most unbelievable, inhuman responses. What would Jesus do? Probably nothing that we would do in our own flesh. You know what? This is only going to occur, and I keep saying it over and over, when you're driven and controlled by the Holy Spirit. It's when you're walking with God, when you are living out the scripture that you read. You know, when we read the scripture, again, do you read it and just, well, I, I check. Because this morning, I think, what did I do? My reading schedule was uh, Proverbs 10 through 12. Proverbs is not something you just mass read, right? Have you ever noticed? Have you ever read through Proverbs and think you're going to sit and mass read and I got that whole thing? Yeah, in probably one chapter, you've got about 30 things you've got to work on and look at. It's like, yeah, which one? I don't know, all of them, not even. And then I had three chapters, and I'm going, and after I got done, I kind of went, I have no idea what I'm doing. You've got to pick one, right? You've got to work. You go, this is what God's telling you to do. This is wisdom. The fear of God begins with wisdom. So, this again, it only occurs when the Holy Spirit is directing and guiding our life. So the next time we get together, we're going to start towards the end of the Last Supper. But what's already in your thinking when you get to the end of the, towards the end of the Last Supper? What are you thinking? What's, what's hitting your head when you talk about Morphe Dulu? What are you seeing Jesus doing? He's serving. He didn't say a thing. So we'll get deeper into that and to understand. But again, God is Jesus. We're going to watch God live this life that we struggle and battle to live. But he is living it before us. And we follow our rabbi Jesus every inch of the way. Some of this might might be a little bit more difficult because I'm going to have to do it in three weeks. (laughs) Do, uh, yeah, uh-huh. This whole section, three weeks, and plus the last week's going to be kind of a shorter day because we got our annual meeting and i got to run back. and I'm probably literally going to run over there. But, but anyway, let's spend a deep time first just going, spend this week going back over Philippians 2, 5 through 11 and just look at that and just go deep into the text and say, God, help me to understand this. Help me to understand you deeper. I mean, what you'll come out of this, it's, it is mind-blowing. I will guarantee you that. But it's most amazing. Most amazing to see the beauty of what God has done taking care of us, coming to us. That's always what it says. How do you know Christianity is true? 
Well, let's go this way. This is something simple. Take a look at all the other religions of the world. All their gods multiply gods. Have you ever seen any one god say, I will come and live amongst them as a human being and I, in a perfect life, will go to a merciless execution device and die for their sin. For those who've rebelled against me, hate me, if they could get their hands on me, they'd kill me. And I will come, live the life that they can't, and die for them because they can't. And then welcome them as family. That doesn't blow your mind. I don't know what could. There's nowhere else in any place of the world and time that God has come and taken man's sin on himself. And we're the violators against him. We've sinned against him, and he took our sin that was against him on him to welcome us home to him. That's Christianity. You don't find it anywhere else. And that's what we're going to watch. We're going to see God in action in the next three weeks. Let's pray. God, there's absolutely no way that we can really put this in a box and understand it fully. It's, it's just beyond anything that we can grasp. And the fact that you came and took on human form, but even down to the point of a slave, a servant, but yet again, as we saw you here with us, you saw, well, you helped us see, though, the reality of the fact that what it is to serve, what it is to be kind, what it is to be gracious, what it is to be a God who provides. We saw you do this right in front of us. Father, help us to go deep into the reality that you are very intimate with us and you desire to have a deep, loving relationship with us and want to see us grow. You've paid for the cost of our sin against you at the same time you welcomed us into your family. There's just no way to understand that any deeper than just you, you've done this. Father, thank you again for your love, kindness, and your grace as you've taken us, healed us, and embraced us, all we can do is praise you. Father, again, thank you. We love you and so appreciate everything. In Jesus, amen.